Hi, I'm Charles Wyckoff, and it's an absolute honor to be here today with a good friend and colleague across the retina space, Tom Chula. Tom is MD, MBA, and currently serving as Chief Medical Officer and Chief Development Officer at Clearside Biomedical. Tom is an ophthalmologist by training, actually a vitreoretinal surgeon who has worn many different hats over the last two decades. And today we'll unpack his personal journey and his transition from um, training into academics and through the private practice world into the industry of developing pharmaceuticals. He's played his hand in some incredibly innovative processes, and we look forward to hearing about that. Tom, thanks for being here. Well, Charlie, thanks for being here. I, I, I have to say that um, I, I feel really honored to um, have been in retina over the past two decades. We've all witnessed just incredible amounts of innovation, which has changed our field, has changed the way we practice medicine. Uh, it's, it's changed uh, patients' lives uh, for the better. So it's, it's been a really, really fun journey, and I'm very excited to share some thoughts with you and, and whoever's watching. Awesome. Let's start with your personal journey, right? You trained, you were undergrad at Harvard. You then went back to the West Coast at UCSF Medical School. You then went back to Boston for residency at Harvard and, and finally finished with your vitreoretinal fellowship at Tufts. You know, excellent institutions. What or who along your path inspired you over the course of these long, tough years? So great question. And we have to put it in, into the context of, of history. So I, I started my um, residency in the early 1990s. And, you know, back then, you know, it's amazing to think in really just two decades, back then we would actually laser a patient's fovea if they had wet AMD based on the macular photocoagulation studies. Yeah. So, it, 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 so, so I got, I had the great good fortune of, of doing my residency at Mass Ioneer um, uh, in the early 1990s. And I was exposed to just these really brilliant young faculty members um, who actually, they in turn worked under Judah Folkman and uh, folks like uh, Joan Miller, Evan Gregudis, Lloyd Aello, Tony Adamus. I mean, these were like the uh, folks that, that really started this whole uh, wave of disruptive innovation with anti-VEGF therapy. And it was really exciting and an inspiring time. And then, you know, later on when I finished my training in Boston, I joined the faculty at Indiana University. And to be honest with you, I, I grown up in, in the Boston area, I went to medical school in, in, in California, <clears throat> and I really didn't know much about the Midwest, but it turned out to be a great place. I, I, was, I had been married early, and a great place to start a family and a practice. It's actually the only medical school in the state, and it's the largest medical school in the country with 11 campuses. Um, and I had a traditional academic job um, with a lab and lab technicians, and you know, I got to work with some really brilliant people like Ron Danis and Alon Harris who were doing some really innovative work. We had an antigenesis lab and clinical trials. And I, I, I recall uh, in these early clinical trials, these, these are these Lucentis trials, I was just expecting patients to um, uh, have less vision loss. And I recall how patients improved vividly beyond uh, my expectations. And I realized then and there that um, the folks that I was exposed to at Mass Ioneer um, had been on to something that was truly disruptive and, um, you know, we're off to the races at that point. It was just a super exciting time. So you spent six years on faculty at Indiana University and then you transitioned into private practice at, at Midwest Eye Institute. Tell us about that transition. You know, many doctors spend their careers in, in one or the other and you have the unique perspective of having been, you know, fully immersed in both the university-based practice and then in private practice where you continued to do academics. 
give us sort of the best and wor worst of both worlds. Yeah, and so again, we have to put this in the context of history. So our field was was exploding with innovation at that time. And you know, I, I like to think about therapeutic innovation. It's always caught my fancy, but we also had imaging innovation. You know, OCT uh, was coming along with anti-VEGF and of course all the surgical innovation. And um, uh, I actually transitioned from a traditional academic role to this evolving academic private practice role, which really didn't exist until then. And I think, I think it was born because of all the innovation. Um, and it was literally exploding uh, by that point in the early 2000s. And, and you know, quite frankly, the university was still in the old model and, and they were slow to keep up with all the human resource allocation and the clinical trial infrastructure. So um, as I transitioned over to sort of an academic private practice model, I was able to control and channel resources and staffing for clinical trials, which the university really couldn't do very quickly. And I ultimately hired and trained my own three full-time research coordinators who worked in my trials only. And I think at the same time, um, uh, I was able to transition from a traditional hospital-based surgical retina practice where you're doing you know, cases uh, in a general hospital late at night. I was able to transition immediately to a surgery center uh, setting uh, and it was really just, you know, incredibly efficient. So I think at that, at that point, um, uh, folks who uh, were in retina started to realize that um, they could uh, pivot much more quickly and, and, and allocate resources more efficiently uh, to sort of match all the evolution and all the, all the disruptive innovation and evolution in our field. So you so were doing basic... So you were doing some basic science research when you were on university staff. Did you continue any of that basic science research or did you leave that behind when you transitioned to private practice? Great question. So I had a lab um, along with Ron Danis. We had this um, uh, lab where we, we had all these, you know, quite primitive from now from today's standards. But back then we had a lab with all these different um, animal models of angiogenesis. We had pigs and rats and mice and uh, rabbits and, and even primates at one point. Um, and we were doing PDT and anti-VEGF research in the lab. It was really exciting and fun. But frankly, um, once all the trials started taking off, um, I really didn't have time to do that. Yeah. And so really became more involved in clinical research um, and uh, really never went back to doing lab research uh, uh, myself, although okay. now you know, I direct lab research. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, there was a bit of a transition then. And we'll get to that. So then in 2015, you went and got your MBA. So I know a lot of people talk about this. This seemed to be really popular maybe 10 years or so ago. And kind of now it seems like fewer people are getting an MBA that are, that are, that are in research. But tell us what drove that, that decision and what that process was like. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, I've taken you through this, this historical perspective of retina and how it was changing and, and it changed uh, the nature of practice. Uh, but but Fast forward 20 years beyond that, uh, and frankly, I found myself stagnating. I found myself doing just an ever-increasing number of repeat injections in the clinic, and even some of the clinical trials, which you know at the time were really exciting when you didn't expect patients to get better. Some of the clinical trials became uh, me-too trials, and you were just you know trying a therapy that might last a little bit longer or it might be a little bit better, but really wasn't super exciting or innovative. And so I, I realized that I didn't want to just do injections all the time, although it, it's great, you're helping lots of patients. I, I, I wanted to help patients in a potentially more sustainable and exponential way, maybe with a more you know, 
direct role in therapeutic development, especially after having you know, been involved in lab research and clinical research. So um, I, I decided to go back and, and get an MBA. And it was really a, a, a turning point for me because it, it really broadened my horizons. It helped me think beyond my own little retina silo to thinking more system, systematically about healthcare problems and solutions. I would say that um, you know, folks ask me this all the time: Is it, is it was it worth the effort, or or what? You know, do you do you use it? You know, and the answer is no. I mean, I took it was <laughs> I had 51 credit hours. Um, I took accounting. I took three courses in operations management. Yeah. Um, you know, leadership and so on and so forth. So I'm I'm not sitting at Clearside um, calculating internal rates of return or anything like that. But what I think it does do is it, it does broaden your horizons. It does force you to think more systematically about problems. It does <clears throat> help you think about um, leadership and leading teams uh, in, you know, in communication skills. So unlike medical school where it's very individualized, at least it was when I went, um, um, MBA, uh, the MBA programs are much more um, collaborative. You work in yeah. teams, you do team projects. And that's really how the real world works, especially in these in corporate environments. Fascinating. So then, and then after that, you focused on sort of moving into, into industry where you've played an incredible hand in developing some amazingly innovative technologies. 2015, you went to Optitech, you're involved in medical strategy and many other things. But then I want to focus on your time at Spark Therapeutics, right? Because there, you joined that team in 2017 and, and, and you played a significant role in the development and ultimate market introduction of Luxterna, of course, the first approved gene therapy for genetic disorder, period, across all of medicine. I mean, an amazing advance that obviously built on the work of Gene Bennett and Al McGuire and many, many, many others across the space. What, what was that like working on that, on that project and then bringing that to market? What, give, give us the context of what that looked like. Well, that's a great question. And, and it was super exciting. Um, uh, and, 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 and when I was at Spark, I had the same feeling I had um, back uh, when I first started uh, mm. our fellowship, where um, you know anti-VEGF changed the world for the better, and you had that same feeling at Spark that we were doing something that was truly historic. Uh, it was going to be um, uh, sort of leading the way um, with a truly disruptive, you know, innovative therapy that would serve later as a platform for other gene therapies. So it was it was it was really an exciting time, um, and it made me feel frankly young again, like like I was like I was back. <laughs> Uh, in the heyday of anti-VEGF, um, you know, and see these videos of these kids who um, literally, uh, you know, can't walk through the yeah. mobility test, and then, you know, even a year later, two years later, three years later, be able to walk through these uh, mobility tests and go trick-or-treating for the first time or yeah. see the stars at night for the first time. Wow. It was really, really exciting. Um, and so I think what I learned at Spark, uh, uh, Again, similar to Anthony Jeff, is that there were a lot of challenges. Uh, you know, I think um, the actual uh, innovation of gene therapy is is really uh, interesting and exciting. But there were a lot of other innovations, uh, particularly with uh, developing a novel endpoint like multi-luminous yeah. mobility testing, um, like introducing ocular gene therapy treatment centers and, and training surgeons, uh, like think, thinking about orphan disease uh, yeah. therapies, which really hadn't existed in retina previous to this. Um, thinking about pricing, reimbursement, the business model, yeah. just a lot of new um, uh, territory for retina. And it was yeah. really fun to be involved in that. I'd love to unpack that a little bit more, Tom. That, that development of a novel primary endpoint for FDA approval, right? This mobility test. Tell us why you had to go down that path as an organization, right? Why couldn't you just use visual acuity? Tell us how you came up with that idea as a team 
And I think that there are some, there are some real meaningful learnings for things like stem cells and, and other things that are being developed in the space now where we probably need to develop alternative endpoints that aren't currently in use. Give us that thought process. So this is really the work of Dan Chung, who's still at Spark. Uh, Dan is an IRD specialist and super smart. Um, we've had, I had the great good fortune of working with so many brilliant people at Spark, and Dan was one of them. But this is really the work of Dan Chung. Um, but, but basically, you know, as you know, uh, uh, retinitis, pigmentosa, and related disorders are, are rod disorders. They affect uh, night vision and, and, and peripheral vision, and really don't affect visual acuity till late in, in the disease. And so we really needed a, an endpoint that um, uh, captured those um, qualities. And the multiluminous mobility test does that, but it, it's also a, um, a, a test of real-world visual function. So the seven different lighting conditions, they're meant to simulate lighting um, in different scenarios in the real world. And um, the, the mobility test itself is, is meant to simulate walking uh, around obstacles uh, in the real world. And the FDA, as you know, there is interested in, 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 in these outcomes. Um, and so uh, I think what many people don't know is there was a lot of work in validating that. So mm -hmm. Spark did that. Spark validated it in conjunction with the FDA. Um, and what does that mean to validate it? Did you have to do it with people with different levels of impairment and show that there was a dose dependence on sort of their outcome, depending on the severity of the disease. What, what, what does that mean to validate this test? Great question. So um, uh, the actual um, testing or the validation of the MLMT uh, was almost a trial in of itself. There were patients who, um, there were normals and, and patients who went through this test um, uh, all the way from, you know, from baseline to, to a year later. Uh, and they had to assess for uh, reproducibility. Yeah. Um, they had to assess for uh, correlations with visual fields, um, with, with uh, full field light sensitivity, for example. Uh, and there's a whole paper just on, on validation uh, of the MLMT. Um, and, and, and basically, um, uh, any novel endpoint you know, needs to have some um, uh, value for or, or predictive value for um, uh, correlating with the patient's uh, functioning in the real world. And so, so there was a lot that went into that. So one other question about Lexterna, how did you price the product? Tell us a little bit about orphan drug pricing in the US. Yeah, great question. So um, there's an Orphan Disease Act of 1983, I believe. And um, that was put in place to foster uh, therapies for rare diseases. You know, some of these rare uh, diseases, these, these children have basically lost the genetic lottery. And up until uh, that time point, uh, companies did not want to develop uh, therapies for, for these patients. Uh, so what the Orphan Disease Act did was it would provide incentives uh, like uh, tax credits and exclusivity. Um, and then ultimately, um, uh, these therapies are valued uh, uh, there's a whole science behind valuing. I got to work with a, a health outcomes, health economics outcomes research team uh, on this. And there's um, methods to uh, de determining uh, the value. And, and some of these therapies, uh, Luxterna included, depending on how you model it, have been shown actually to save money for society, uh, even though they are expensive. Um, so so I, I think it, it's an important lesson for retina is that our therapies, whether it's anti-VEGF or some of these gene therapies, mm -hmm. provide a huge amount of value uh, for mm -hmm. society. And Luxterna in particular, without going into all the details, Luxterna in particular, you know, if you can um, have a child uh, uh, get to a higher level of education 
um, a higher level of, of occupational training, um, uh, be productive in the workforce, pay taxes, um, not require as many caregivers, that ends up uh, creating a, an enormous value uh, for society. The interesting paradox is that um, in the US, uh, commercial insurers obviously pay for care, but they don't pay for social services, the government does. Um, in other countries, like in the EU, the government pays for both. So uh, the, the government, um, uh, since the government's both a payer of social services and of, of, of medical care, right. um, sometimes the uh, realization of, of the value uh, is an easier um, argument. In this country, you know, there's, there's different uh, commercial payers are paying for uh, therapy and the government's paying for social services. Fascinating. Okay, and then in 2018, you transitioned over to ClearSide. You were the chief medical officer. Now you're the CMO and the chief development officer. What originally attracted you to ClearSide? So actually, when I was at Optotech, um, you know, uh, I, I learned a lot of lessons. And, um, uh, and that is that uh, biotech is, is, <laughs> involves a lot of risk. And as many people in the retina world uh, recall is that, you know, Flavista yeah. failed in phase three, right. the stock crashed, but, but basically we had um, uh, some funding left over and I got to do um, business development with the team uh, for eight months after Flavista uh, failed. And that was a great experience. So they got to go around to all these different companies and learn about their assets. And what I realized then and there was that um, the, the three next waves of innovation for retina uh, were in the short term um, drug delivery, in the midterm, gene therapy, and in the long-term, cell therapy. Uh, and so obviously when the opportunity came to, to work at Spark, I jumped at that, it was a great experience. And then um, what attracted me to ClearSide uh, was that uh, it basically focused on drug delivery, sustained delivery, drug delivery. So many of the therapies we, we, we think about now um, involve uh, sustained release or sustained delivery of anti-VEGF. And, and ClearSide has a great platform for that, um, and also potentially a platform for gene therapy as well as uh, a therapy for um, ocular melanoma because you can target the, the relevant space. So that's what attracted me to ClearSide. Um, however, two weeks after I joined ClearSide, one of the, uh, the phase three trials were unmasked. Um, you know, they, did, they didn't meet their primary endpoint. Uh, the stock crashed, you know, a lot of the leadership left. Right. Uh, got to close down trials. And it was really, you know, almost personally at one level, you, you could think it, it would be a disaster, but actually it's been a great learning experience. Unlike Spark, where I learned about a new subject matter, um, at ClearSide, I've learned about rebuilding a company, right. uh, building a team, and that's what led to the chief development officer role, to think about a pipeline, uh, to think very systematically about unmet needs, therapies that could go into the space, and how that would potentially uh, serve a niche. Um, so, so that's sort of a, 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 a taste of what's happened at ClearSide. It's been a fun ride. Um, we have a, a, a CEO, George Lezeski, who's been an absolute pleasure to work with. And, um, you know, I think we've made some, some nice progress. And you have a lot going on. You have a lot of shots on goal here at ClearSide moving forward. What, what's maybe one, one or two that you're personally most excited about seeing move forward? Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, uh, after these phase three trials failed, we had a uh, sort of rebuild a, a pipeline. And uh, I'm really excited about the fact that we are able to um, uh, work on a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, finish some preclinical studies, file an IND, have it be accepted by the FDA. And we plan to have uh, uh, the phase one, two, a clinical trial up and running before the end of the year. 
And, and I, I think it's very exciting because we can deliver that therapy to the affected tissues. It potentially has many month uh, durability uh, and you know, may serve an unmet need uh, for patients with common blinding diseases. Awesome. Look forward to hearing about that more in the future. So maybe, maybe just to close out, what's some advice to other colleagues, right? You hear a lot of retina specialists that are involved in, in trials and in sort of academic work. I'm interested in thinking about transitioning over into the pharmaceutical industry. You've had some incredible experiences. You've seen the good, you've seen the bad, you've seen the challenges. You've had some great successes. What's the advice you might have for some other clinical colleagues out there thinking about making that transition? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, what we learned in our MBA program um, was that oftentimes in order to move forward, you have to step backward a little bit. You have to be willing to step back and learn. And, um, uh, in retina, we're, we're very much siloed in our space. We're, we're incredible subject matter experts. We go from talking to a patient to looking at an OCT, looking at something that really represents you know, cellular layers in the body. Um, but what we're, we haven't really been good at is leading teams. Although you might lead teams in clinic, um, there's a lot more complexity uh, in a corporate environment. Um, and, and, you know, you have these, these subject matter experts that you're, that you're leading. They may not be physicians, but, but they're exquisitely well-trained and they're just as specialized in their fields. They could be, you know, the PhDs who have worked in regulatory for 20 years uh, or have worked in, you know, medical affairs for a decade um, or biostatisticians with, with a PhD. So there's a huge amount of subject matter expertise. And I think the, the challenge um, for physicians is that uh, as opposed to being, you know, the captain of your own practice ship or, or a managing partner in a small group, all of a sudden you have to um, work with, you know, these incredibly talented uh, teams who really, frankly, know more than you do about industry. Um, and you have to be willing to work in this hierarchy where you report to somebody who reports to the CEO, who reports to the board, who reports to the investing public. Um, and I think that's a transition that is maybe difficult for a lot of our colleagues who are used to being, you know, top of the heap in the practice. Yeah. Fascinating perspective, Tom. I really appreciate your team tonight. Good luck. Look forward to the conversations ahead. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Take care. You too.